First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, it says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Many of you know that I grew up in the Mojave Desert. The Mojave Desert is that stretch of desert between San Bernardino and Las Vegas, Nevada. In this desert, there is cactus and Joshua trees and rocks and dirt. And then there's more dirt. And then there's a lot of dirt. As a matter of fact, my mother had the impossible task of keeping five kids clean in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Now, that's a challenge in and of itself. But when you're in the middle of the Mojave Desert and there's a profound lack of water and there's a profound lack of soap and there's a profound lack of towels, keeping kids clean becomes almost an impossibility. If you're a mother or a father, you probably know there's something inside of a child that wants to get dirty. And the reality is we live in a world where it's impossible, almost impossible to stay clean. How do Christians stay pure? How do they remain clean when we live in a world where impurity invades our senses and cooperates with corrupt thinking and selfish living? Now, I want you to remember something about the book that we're studying. In the first chapter of 1 Peter, we've been introduced to a group of Christians, pilgrims who have fled a wave of persecution. Peter refers to them as pilgrims, strangers. We even use the term resident aliens, foreigners in a strange land. But the designation isn't a, a political one. It's an, and it's not simply ideological. It's spiritual. When you become a Christian, you become a stranger in a strange land. The reality is you become a person who is the citizen of two kingdoms. You live on the earth, but the reality is you weren't meant to remain on the earth. Believers' true citizenship is in heaven. And so Peter gives a description of how believers should live in a hostile world in the midst of the pain and the persecution. Peter urges them to live in hope in verses 3 through 12. And now the theme of hope is going to make this transition to a, another theme. And the theme is living in holiness from verse 13 all the way to verse 21 in the chapter. The hope we have as believers is found in our relationship and friendship with Jesus. Peter has talked about the source of our salvation. 
We're chosen by the Father. We're made holy by the Holy Spirit. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, it says in verses 1 and 2. Peter has encouraged the saints that our salvation is guaranteed. The proof and the permanence and the power having been demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus. Our salvation is kept for us in heaven. And God's mighty power is the guarantee that we will arrive safely in heaven in verses 3 through 5. Peter's spoken not only of the source of our salvation and the guarantee of our salvation, but also the joy of our salvation in verses 6 through 9. Joy in the middle of the trial. Joy when our world is being threatened by trial and trouble and tribulation. Joy in the knowledge that as our trials increase, so, so does our faith in God. So does our trust in the Lord in verse 7. And in verse 8 and in verse 9. And then we learned that the salvation that we have was the theme of the prophets in the Old Testament. We learned that our salvation is the subject that generates cosmic interest by supernatural beings. In other words, angels think about you. And they think about your salvation. And now Peter is going to transition into the longest section in the epistle. He moves from the theme of hope to the theme of holiness. And the key question becomes, how do we remain clean? How do we stay pure? How do we conduct ourselves in the very world in which we have to live in? I thought about that. How does a mother keep a child clean when she lives in a world filled with dirt? I think you know the answer. It takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of soap. It takes a lot of towels. So how does the saint maintain some measure of purity? How do we remain unsoiled and unstained in a world that's completely soiled and completely stained? The water and the soap and the towels, as far as Peter is concerned, he's going to suggest we look at the glory of God in verse 13, the holiness of God in verses 14 and 15, and the word of God in verse 16. So this portion of Peter's passage is going to tell us to center our lives on grace and salvation in verse 13. We concentrate on obedience in verse 14. We focus on holiness in verses 15 and 16. But holiness is such a strange and foreign concept, even in the church, that I have to give it some explanation. Imagine describing cleanliness to a mother who's never seen water or seen soap. And all you've done is lived in a desert filled with dirt. You see, part of the challenge for us is to begin to think carefully about the word, what the word means. In an earlier passage or, and in an earlier message, I, we began to talk just a little bit about the subject of holiness. And I quoted Jerry Bridges, who writes, quote, To be holy is to be morally blameless. To be holy is to be separated from sin and therefore 
consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct that's befitting those who are so separated. And so holy means not simply separated from sin, but it also means consecrated to God. And that's one of the key concepts in the subject of holiness. It's consecration. In other words, what it means, it's something that's set apart for godly purposes. And so the ultimate meaning is a separation that makes it utterly different. When we think about God being holy, we make reference to the fact that God is utterly and unmistakably different from all of the subjects that people have created in their own mind concerning a fabrication of what kind of a God is. When we think of the Bible, maybe some of you have a Bible right now in front of, your, in front of you and on your lap and on the front cover of the Bible it says, Holy Bible. And the reason why it's called a Holy Bible is because it's utterly, specifically, absolutely different. It's separated from and different from every other book on the planet Earth. And so Peter begins with our response to our salvation. We center on grace and salvation. And verse 13 is going to take just a, a bit of time. So now, because it's going to provide, verse 13 is going to provide the basis on which we can talk about every single verse in the rest of this epistle. And most specifically till we get to verse 21. So we want to pay close attention to it. It says in verse 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the expression gird up your loins is not something that we normally say in our culture and our society. Girding up the loins is a literal translation of an ancient eastern expression. As you can imagine in the ancient world men and women both wore robes. It's not safe to call them dresses. It's safe to call them robes. And in the ancient world, when people needed to travel quickly, they would, <laughs> they would hike up their skirt. <laughs> and they would tie it off. In other words, they would have a rope. If you needed to move quickly, if you needed to move in haste, you would lift your robe and you would tie it off at the loins and, and, and that's the waist. And so the expression came to mean prepare yourself. And so here the expression means prepare your mind for action. In the English speaking world, we have another way of saying it. When someone says, I need you to take off your coat and I need you to roll up your sleeves, what do you think is going to happen? When someone says, take off your coat and roll up your sleeves, what you should expect is, hey, we're going to have to work. There's a job that has to be done. There's a work that needs to take place. This is Peter's way of saying the task at hand is going to require you to be mentally alert, morally disciplined, spiritually focused. And I know what some of you are thinking. I don't want to be mentally alert. I don't want to be morally disciplined. I don't want to be spiritually focused. And if that's your attitude, guess what? 
the chances are you're going to remain in trouble. What's going to happen is the discouragement and the despair and the pain and the heartache and the tribulation and the persecutions and the pain that becomes a normal part of living is going to consume you and it's going to overwhelm you and you're going to look for alternatives because if you can be lazy if you can be morally undisciplined, if you can remain spiritually unfocused, then Satan has accomplished a major big deal. And that's to make your life miserable. Now in speaking of the source of our salvation and the security of our salvation and the joy of our salvation and then the Old Testament theme of our salvation and the angel's preoccupation with our salvation... Up until verse 13, what Peter has been doing is he's been giving you interesting information. He's been describing the facts. Fact number one, fact number two, fact number three, fact number four. And remember, that's, that's the facts. The facts have been, hey, guess what? Your salvation has a source. Your salvation has security. There's joy in your salvation. Your salvation has been the theme of Old Testament writers and an angel's preoccupation. And now, in light of all of those facts, guess what Peter's going to do? He's going to issue a command. And the command, of course, is something not just simply to think about, but to actually do. Prepare your minds for action, he says. I need you to be sober. I need you to rest your hope fully or completely. That means without reservation. And look upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember what you've already learned. You've been saved by grace. It's the grace of God that that allowed Jesus to come to the earth. It's the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God that allowed Jesus to come and live the perfect life that you couldn't live and to die on the cross for your sins. It's the grace of God that has given you the mechanism whereby your conscience can be cleansed and your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God and have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, even though there are benefits of experiencing salvation. And there are benefits. Hey, guess what? Being saved is better than not being saved. Being forgiven is better than not being forgiven. Having the promise of heaven is way better than the, the certainty of hell because of sin. But oddly enough, Peter's point isn't the benefits of salvation. The part of Peter's point is the amazing glory that God receives when you believe the truth about Jesus. See, let me just be clear here. It glorifies God when you believe Him. It glorifies God when you trust Him. It glorifies God when you Allow yourselves in humility and submission to obey God. And some of you might be thinking, oh, I have trust issues. My response, get over it. Get past the issue and trust him. Hey, you know, I have legitimate questions. 
Hey, guess what? The Bible will provide answers. And the reality is, get over it. You see, if you believe God, and if you trust God, it gives God glory when you believe him and when you trust him. And so when, when Peter writes, rest your hope fully without reservation upon the grace that is brought to you. The, in the original language, it, it could be translated, is being brought to you and continues to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the second coming of Jesus. The word revelation is the unveiling. It's the revealing. This is, this is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so part of the point that Peter is making is that you live your life in such a way in the earnest expectation that Jesus is coming. I want you to think about this for a moment. Your present circumstance is in part informed by the future in your future it includes the return of Jesus Christ and because Jesus is coming back your present circumstances is affected our minds our thinking our thoughts are the battlefield where the war is fought for the way in which we will live and so when Peter says Prepare your mind. Part of the point is you have to be prepared to think differently about this world. You have to be prepared to think differently about this world and this world's philosophy. Remember, this world's philosophy is a world that invites you to live your life apart from God, apart from the promise of God, apart from the revelation of God. That's part of the point. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, where he says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God's goal is to make you blameless and harmless. Without fault. How do you remain pure in a crooked and a perverse generation? And that is you're going to have to be different. You're going to have to shine. Instead of be like a dark little spot amongst many dark spots. Listen carefully. We as Christians are not called to isolation. That means withdrawing from the world in the hopes that none of it rubs on, uh, off on us. You know, again, when you live in the, in, the, in the desert and in the dirt, your mother might say, okay, I need you to stay away from the dirt. <laughs> and you go, hey, guess what? Everywhere you go, there is dirt. That's why it's a desert. You know what grass and trees and water do they keep the dirt away that's why when I grew up and I thought I'm an adult now I don't have to live in the desert anymore I don't have to live surrounded by dirt there's a there's an alternative we don't 
isolate ourselves, withdraw ourselves. We're to shine as lights in the world. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Note that. In John 17, 14, keep them from the evil one. It's not isolation. It's insulation. It isn't being kept away from every weird and wicked thing. Because guess what? That's not impossible. Imagine if my mother had said to me, whatever you do, don't, don't be around dirt. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen. As soon as we walk out the door, there's dirt. You go to the bus stop, there's dirt. You go to school, there's dirt. The wind blows, there's dirt. You come home, there's dirt. So what do you do? When we speak about the world, we're not talking about the physical dirt ball called the globe. We're, not, we're speaking about a worldview or a philosophy. And remember what a worldview is. It's the way that we look at the world. And everyone has a worldview. James Sire writes, quote, A worldview is a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, which may be partially true, which may be entirely false, which we hold consciously or unconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic makeup of our world. The world resists God. The world opposes God. The world opposes the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And so when the Bible says don't be of the world and don't be a part of the world, it's not talking about leave the planet. It's talking about think about the world in which you live in that denies the reality of the Bible, that denies the reality of its revelation concerning the way God really is, that denies the reality of sin, that denies the solution to the problem of sin, which is a savior, that denies the reality of hell, that hopes that there's a heaven, but believes that heaven is available to anyone and everyone just so long as they're modestly good. So the world resists and opposes God's plan for righteousness and holiness. And so when the Bible says, guess what? God's made you different. He's created you so that you could be born again, so that you could be cleansed from sin, so that you could enter into fellowship and relationship with God. No wonder the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 and 17, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, John isn't speaking about don't love rainbows, don't love rock formations, don't love roller coaster rides. John isn't speaking of... Hey, don't love astronomical phenomenon or the metamorphosis of a butterfly. He's not a talking about the beauty and the majesty of the planet Earth. He's talking about a way of thinking that refuses to include God. As a matter of fact, John says in 1 John chapter 2, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that is not from the Father. That is from the world. And the world is passing away and its lusts or desires. But the one who does the will of God will abide forever. 
the world like dirt is designed to make you dirty. And the world has a kind of a fatal attraction. We are designed by God to know God and worship God. But human beings, apart from God, are in sin. And they're hopelessly attracted. It's almost like a powerful, powerful magnet. If you take a powerful magnet and you put it next to iron filings, the filings are drawn. The power of magnetism, even though it is invisible, it is powerful. And the attraction of the world is powerful. The world attracts you to fame and to fortune and to pleasure and to self. The world in its powerful influences whispers constantly, make sure you're happy. Make sure your desires are fulfilled. Make sure that people think the best about you. Make sure that your fortune, your pleasure, your self is taken care of. Kenneth Wiest writes about the world apart from God. That world, by the way, is, is the, the Greek word for that world is cosmos. We get the word cosmology from it. We even get the word cosmetics from it. Do you know, are you saying girls can't wear cosmetics that's not what I'm saying at all my pastor used to say if the barn needs painting paint it <laughs> hey you know what it's not a sin for a woman to want to look attractive that's not a sin that's not the point Kenneth Wiest writes cosmos that's the world refers to an ordered system. Here it is the ordered system of which Satan is the head. His fallen angels and demons are his emissaries. The unsaved human race are his subjects. Much of this world system is religious, cultured, refined, intellectual, but it is anti-God and anti-Christ. The world of unsaved humanity is inspired by the spirit of the age. As a matter of fact, another Bible writer, Trench, defines as follows. All that floating mass of thoughts and opinions and maxims and speculations and hopes and impulses and aims and aspirations at any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitutes a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale again inevitably to Exhale. You know, we sing a song here. You're the air I breathe. Jesus is the air that we breathe. We inhale and we exhale. And the truth is the culture and the world in which we live in, we're inhaling the culture's philosophy. And we're exhaling it. We're surrounded by it. And informed by it. And then conformed by it. Think carefully. The world's philosophy is to provide answers. Answers apart from the revelation of God. Answers apart from the person of Jesus Christ. 
Your real problem is a social problem. Your real problem is a financial problem. Your real problem is a psychological problem. They'll, they'll categorize all the real problems that you have. The real problem is in your marriage. The real problem is in your government. The real problem is in the economic circumstances. Those are the real problems. And the Bible constantly, constantly says, no, 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 no. Here's the real problem. Here's the real problem. The real problem is sin. And the real solution is a savior. The real problem, the real problem is, how can you, a sinner, honor God? How can you, a sinner, have friendship and fellowship with God? How can you do that? That's the gospel. The gospel is, it's done in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. There's grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope and cleansing in Christ. The world holds on to a different hope. The hope of the world is a hope that if there is a God, he doesn't really care about us. The hope of the world that whatever God is, it's not the God of the Bible. The hope of the world is that, the, that God is a smiling grandfather up in the sky who's winking casually and carefully over whatever indiscretions you're involved in. The God of the Bible can't be the true and the living God according to the world because he is holy and just and righteous and perfect. Why is this important? The pull of the world is strong and powerful. It's every bit as powerful as gravity, invisible, relentless, never absent, never passive. And the point that Peter is making is until you realize just how powerful this pull is, until you realize just how powerful the pull is, you'll never understand the passion or the meaning behind Peter's exhortation. Peter is in effect saying, if ever there was a time not to kick back and relax, it's now. If ever there was a time to take off your coat and roll up your sleeves, this is not the time to say whatever will be, will be. This is not the time to be lazy. This is not the time to just simply provide a board of inquiry. Or a, a, a diligent search. This is not the time to embrace this world or its philosophy. Be sober. Fix your hope. The addictions and intoxications that cloud your thinking. That numb your resolve. Here's the point. The fact of salvation produces the fruit of salvation. The fact of salvation produces the fruit of salvation, and that's hope. Remember what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Now these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. We talk a lot about faith. We talk a lot about love. But we don't always talk a lot about hope. In verse 3, Peter says, we're born again to a living hope. And remember, hope in the Bible isn't some vague or indefinite thing. It's the work of grace by the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit's unmistakable power. Hope in the Bible isn't, well, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I make it. 
It's not like a kid at Christmas time when he asks for a present and he goes, I hope I get a bicycle, which means you may or may not get the bicycle. Hope is the certainty that comes with knowing that God's promises are true. Remember what I said to you? That when you trust the Lord, it glorifies the Lord. When you hope in the Lord, it glorifies the Lord. We might think about hope as the Holy Spirit's revelation about the future. Listen carefully. Hope is the revelation of the Holy Spirit about your future. What is your future? It's a future in which Jesus shows up. It's a future where you come back to life. It's a future where you see the Lord Jesus face to face. Faith looks up. Hope looks forward. Faith accepts. Hope expects. Faith appropriates. Hope anticipates. In verse 13, we see the meaning of hope and the duty of hope. And and so what do I mean by the duty? Hope is a positive command. It's not a matter of the emotion, but of the will. Obedience doesn't demand that you feel like obeying. The meaning of hope and the duty of hope and the power of hope brings fruition. And so here is the deal that Peter is making. Hope is going to bring fruition. The world is going to end the way the Bible says it's going to end. Jesus, even though you may not believe it, is going to return. This is Peter's point. If the return of Jesus is a part of your future then it should be a part of your present circumstances. That's the point. A perfect hope is marked by certainty and continuity. The certainty is the foundation, the adequate warrant or the basis for the thing that is hoped for, and the continuity is our constant response to this well-grounded hope. And so in the midst of trial, in the midst of terror, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pain in the midst of detachment in the midst of all of the things that creates a mechanism where your life is miserable Peter invites you to go my my future is certain my future is certain Jesus is coming back my future is certain Peter writes be sober but remember this sobriety isn't limited to the absence of alcohol when, he, when Peter says, be sober, this isn't just about drug influences or alcoholic influences. This sobriety is meant to extend to every part of your life. It is to include any stupefications that numb you or numb your resolve. This is a sobriety in your mind and in your heart. Here's the idea. Whatever gets you high, whatever excites you, whatever things you indulge in, whatever it is that breaks your concentration, whatever it is that clouds your thinking, Peter is making a reference to anything. Not just bad things. Anything that will distract you from the task at hand. That's the point. 
Sobriety isn't simply the absence of a drug or an intoxicant. It means sobriety of belief as well as behavior. In other words, when you look at the word sober, the exact opposite is self-indulgent. The opposite of sobriety is self-indulgence. Whether it's eating or drinking or recreation or hobbies or whatever it is, it means to live a sober, solid, spirit-controlled life. And here's the point that Peter is making. Children inherit the nature of their parents. We as children of God have inherited a divine nature. He's going to talk about it in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're called to follow in Christ's footsteps. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. Peter is reminding the believer of God's glory. And the God's glory is what motivates us in our present behavior. That's the point. Peter doesn't simply want to issue a moral command. He wants to explain the command. How do you reflect God's character? How is it that you make Jesus your priority? How is it that you follow his commands? How do you set your hope fully on the grace that's going to appear when Jesus shows up? How do you change your mind so that God's plans become your plan? How do you adjust your lifestyle to glorify God? When you answer those questions, guess what? You persevere in trial. You persevere in trouble. You persevere in tribulation. Jesus is coming. We have a different goal because we have a different future. Jesus is coming. We have a different goal because we have a different future. And now look at verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. How do we connect hope and holiness? Hope produces holiness. Holiness strengthens hope. And Peter's point, as obedient children. By the way, in the ancient world, children were taught from an early age to imitate their parents. In the Roman culture and in the Greek culture, from the very start, a child is taught to emulate her mother or to emulate her father. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing, isn't it? If the person reflects sobriety, morality, that's a good thing. But if the person models wickedness, it's a bad thing. But Peter says, as obedient children. Now, I want you to understand something. When he says, as obedient children, he means that this becomes the, the, the defining characteristic of the child of God. We have three boys, and our boys are very, very different. Miguel is very different from Anthony, and Anthony is very different from Jonathan. They have likes that are different. They have dislikes that are different. They have gifts that are different. They have callings that are different. They have different preoccupations, different passions, different everything. But they all have something in common. They are all our children. They all model a certain set of behaviors that was instilled from a very young age. And so when he's talking about this seminal characteristic, the defining characteristic, there's lots and lots of traits, there's lots and lots of characteristics, but this is the defining characteristic of the believer. 
So you might be thinking, I thought that the defining characteristic of the believer is belief. No. The defining characteristic of the believer is obedience. We refuse to conform or fashion ourselves to the former lusts, which we embraced in our ignorance, Peter writes. These are the things we did because we were ignorant of God. We were ignorant of Christ. What were those things that kept you impure? The list could be endless. It could have been drugs. It could have been alcohol. It may have been food or sleep or laziness or recreation or or sexual preoccupations or clothing or possession or position or recognition or authority or, or power or pornography or vehicle or relaxation. Whatever it was that you were preoccupied with. That's the idea. But the expression obedient children means obedience because this is the defining trait. We are saved. And because we are saved, we can live differently. We are free to disobey sin and its lusts. And we're free to obey God. So the contrast is the, is the contrast with the children of desire. Here's the point that Peter is making. People apart from Christ can be described as people who are desirous of things. The child of desire, the child of desire obeys those desires, indulges those desires. I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere else. I want to play a video game. I want, uh, mom, I'm bored. As if being bored is like the worst thing that could possibly happen. Can you imagine the child going, "Um, I'm homeless. (laughs) Okay, now we have something to talk about. If the greatest problem in your child's life is that they're bored, then guess what? Here's what they want to do. Indulge desire. Not Christ. Not God. Not God's word. The children of desire... They want money and what money can buy. They want sex and the pleasure that it provides. They want popularity and authority and possession and food and recognition and house and car and property and position and clothing. They want to fit in. Human beings apart from God, they're ignorant of God. And they clearly don't want what God wants. And by the way, The result of not knowing God and being ignorant of God is one of two results. Obsession or emptiness. Obsession or emptiness. You become obsessed with something and you want it and you want more of it and you want more of it and you want more of it. But what happens is in direct proportion to your obsession, the emptiness becomes larger and greater and the darkness becomes larger and greater. And then you become disgusted and discouraged and filled with despair and even depression because lust, no matter how powerful, no matter how strong, no matter how titillating, fails to satisfy. And so Peter's argument is children inherit their parents' nature and we should live holy lives because God is holy. Ignorance leads to indulgence and so unsaved people lack wisdom and discernment and it causes them to indulge in every crazy desire. But here's the point of the Bible. God isn't distant. In the book of Acts, Peter, excuse me, Paul, when he's talking to the philosopher at Mars Hill, he says, hey, you know what? 
You live your life like God is far away, but he's not far away. He's as close. He's as close as closing your eyes and turning from your sin and turning to the Savior. God isn't far away. The world and its lusts no longer control the believer's life. It was Albert Barnes who wrote, It does not require great learning to be a Christian and be convinced of the truth of the Bible. It requires only an honest heart and a willingness to obey God. No wonder James wrote in James chapter 1 verse 22, Don't deceive yourselves. Don't listen simply to the Bible, but do what it says. Oswald Chambers said, the golden rule for understanding in spiritual matters is not intellect, but obedience. Have you ever said to your child, I don't need you to understand. I need you to obey me. Well, I don't understand your command. Hey, you know what? That's not my problem. Maybe one day you will understand, but it's not your understanding that I'm looking for. It's your obedience. And then our response. Look at what it says in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. By the way, the word conduct is the Greek word anastrophe. You've heard of the word apostrophe. This word is anastrophe. Peter's fond of the word. He uses it eight times in this epistle. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Out of the 13 times the word occurs in the New Testament, the word literally means the turnings about of life. The way in which you go. Um, In the New King James and in the the, the Revised Standard, it says conduct. It can also be translated behavior. It can also be translated in everything that you do. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all that you do. Not just going to church. Not just reading your Bible. Behavior is the mirror in which everyone shows their image. Behavior becomes the mechanism of the revelation of what's going on inside of you. I don't know if it was a basketball coach who said, rudeness, yelling, anger, swearing are a weak man's imitation of strength. That's what weak people do. Our pattern is the Lord himself. God says, conform to my character. But as he who called you is holy, hagios, it means to be righteous, pure, sinless, godly, perfect, complete, fulfilled in every possible sense of the word. We're set apart and different. Why, why, why? Because God is different. Because God is different. We're set apart and different. Why? Because our future is different. We're set apart and different. Why? Because our focus and desire is captured in Christ. We live a Christ-centered life. Someone once said that a Christ-centered life is like a good watch. Open face, busy hands, pure gold, full of good works. 
We've already been declared holy by God because of our love for and our faith in and our hope in Christ. Holiness means that all parts of our lives and and character are in the process of being conformed to Jesus, informed by the Bible. That's the idea that our inside is changing. And so is our outside. In verse 16 it says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Where is it written? Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. In Leviticus 11, 44 it says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. When the Lord gave this instruction to the children of Israel, when he called them out of Egypt, he was saying in effect, I found you and saved you. Not so that you could be like everybody else. I found you and I saved you so that you could be with me. That's the point. The command applied to the Old Testament believers, but now Peter declares that the same command applies to believers in the Lord Jesus The Jews were a chosen nation, but now God is in effect saying, Christian, you're chosen. I chose you to be different. I chose you to be separate. That's the idea. Again, it's not so much community as immunity. We think of seclusion rather than inclusion. I want you to do me a favor. I don't want you to do it right now, but I do want you to think about it. When you read the passage, be holy, for I am holy. I want you to ask the question, what do you think about? What goes through your mind? What goes on inside of your heart? When my mother used to say, Gina, you're clean. I need you to stay clean. (laughs) I knew that I was only one dirt clod away from being impure once again. When you see be holy, do you think about moral superiority? Do you think about a judgmental spirit? Do you think about non-participation in the pleasures of the world? Then you're missing the point. Because when Peter writes, be holy, he's not talking about a moral superiority. And he's certainly not talking about a judgmental spirit. And he's certainly not talking about that there is no joy available whatsoever. He's talking about being separate. It's being separated from sin so that you could have friendship and fellowship with God. It means to embrace his love and embrace his attributes. You see, Jonathan Edwards was right. The more a Christian hates sin, the more he desires to hate it. If you begin hating sin, you're going to begin at the wrong beginning place. Most of us will never learn to hate sin 
until you learn to love God. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with learning to hate sin. It begins with learning to love the Lord. And when you love the Lord, and when you love Jesus, and when you love his plans and purposes, and when you love his character, and when you love the things that he loves, guess what? You're going to begin to hate the things that he hates. C.S. Lewis wrote, It's when we notice the dirt that God is present in us. You know how I knew my mom was always around? She would notice the dirt. Yeah, I couldn't help but noticing that your face is not clean and your hands are not clean and your clothes are not clean. But my mother was insistent. She insisted that I wash my face, that I clean my hands, and that I change my clothes. (laughs) and that I sit at the dinner table. Nothing, Matthew Henry said, nothing can make a man truly great but being truly good and partaking of God's holiness. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something that we are to do because of what we already are. You're already saved. You're already secure. You are already set. Your salvation is accomplished. But in order for you to walk in a wicked world, in order for you to remain pure in a wicked world, you're going to have to come to grips with something. You're going to have to learn to live in hope. You're going to have to learn to live in holiness. And when you learn to live in hope and you learn to live in holiness, guess what? You're taking the first steps. There's many more steps that the passage is going to outline, but that's for another study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for the person who reads that passage of Scripture Be holy, for I am holy. And that's exactly what they think. Moral superiority, smugness, self-righteousness. And Lord, we know that that can't be what it means. Lord, we know that we're saved by grace and that we're kept by grace. Lord, we know that it is love, surrendered, that becomes the best bet for us to live a holy life. Lord, there's so much for us to learn and there's so much for us to do. But Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would take it seriously. That Lord, we would want purity. Lord, we know that you've given us a lot of water and a lot of soap and a lot of towels. Lord, we pray that we would take good advantage. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.